Well, hey, everybody, welcome to Coffeehouse Theology. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, so we're digging into the book of Philippians again tonight. And uh, the goodness of God, our running theme throughout the semester, a couple things. One is, Brian and I want to say thank you for those amazing scrapbooks that you guys put together for us. Uh, and uh, so I came back from my meeting last week at Brentwood to find that on my desk. So that was awesome. And a coffee mug too. So I think Heather Davis led the charge. So thank you, Heather, for that. Uh, but uh, you guys contributed and uh, those those little notes were super meaningful. So thank you guys for that. Uh, also, uh, you may have noticed the staff wearing our Good Time shirts tonight. Uh, there's one. It's his final Wednesday night. So you can wave at one. He'll be here Sunday. Uh, and uh, we kind of had the big send off when his family could be here at our family gathering a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but uh, be sure you give Juan a pat on the back and a word of encouragement. Uh, they'll be here Sunday as well. Uh, but then he'll be taking on his new assignment uh, uh, as our missionary to the state of Florida because they need some missionaries down there, right? Uh, to Alligator Alley. And uh, so anyway, uh, we're sad to see him go, but uh, excited about what God's doing in his heart and his life. Uh, well, as we get ready to go tonight, uh, there is your Slido number. Um, oh, we'll pop that up there. Brady, thank you, buddy. Uh, it's uh, 3721729, or uh, take that QR code. You can give us some questions and we'll do our best to field those. Uh, shout out to Brian. It's tough to both teach and field questions. He did a great job. I listened to the podcast last week uh, in my absence. And, uh, and so Brian's gonna lead with teaching tonight and then I'll come back to join him for Q&A in a little bit. Uh, but let's pray as we get started. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. Uh, God, we thank you for the book of Philippians uh, that points to your goodness in all things. Uh, and so, uh, God, what an incredible passage we're going to look at tonight uh, in Philippians chapter 2 as we looked at what Christ did uh, in uh, God submitting his will to yours. And so, uh, Lord, thank you uh, for uh, these truths. And God, we pray that uh, as we, we dive into your word, we will see, uh, God, things that we've never seen before so that we will walk out of here at people who are changed by your word. So, God, open our ears, our hearts, and our lives to you and be with Brian as he teaches. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I try not to scare anybody. All right, we got the volume of stuff. Woo! That's a little more excitement than I cared for last week. My heart rate's elevated when I teach anyway, so didn't really need any extra jolt. Um, now, I appreciate y'all falling wrong. I, I realized last week, I know you'll notice this is a slightly more detailed outline. Um, I, 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 I worked on trying to kind of reduce it a little bit, but there's some structures in here that different commentators had, and I think they're very helpful. And I think they're very helpful for you to have in the notes a, as you take them away and review this um, in, in different times. And I know a lot of y'all teach, and so I'm hoping that will be helpful to you uh, as you teach. Also, I know I went off outline a lot last week, or, uh, and Jay really hadn't talked about this. We we teach in a little bit different styles, not not better or worse. And, and, and Jay has described it this way. We're both musicians. And uh, when Jay gets a piece of music, he takes it home and practices and practices and practices and then comes back and plays it. Um, I've been playing jazz since I was five years old. And so you hand me a chord progression and a melody and we'll kind of see how things work out. Right, and so there, and you can kind of see that in our teaching styles. And one of the things over the last decade that I've done is been able to adapt, right, to more of an outline, more of a structure. And so I promise I'm going to try and be good this week, and we'll do this. I can I can teach a semester on this book literally from memory. I mean, I've, I I love this book. I love this word. I particularly love what we're going to do tonight. Uh, Philippians two five through eleven. That hymn, right? It, it, it it's literally breathtaking. It is literally breathtaking. So this, we're, this is just going to be so much fun. I'm excited. 
Um, all right, and I'll try and follow the outline. So we'll try and be good. All right, the goodness of God is what we're talking about, right? We talked about God is good. Um, God is the standard of good, right? And what God does is good. And all three of those things are important, right? Because if God can be separate from us and not do good, but God is active, right? In our world, Jesus Christ is in each of us, right? The Holy Spirit uh, to will and to work. And that's, that's really important in our beliefs. And, and, and we talked about Philippians is really theology and street clothes, Right, well, it's really deep. It's an intimate letter written to people who Paul knew really well. And so it's, it, um, it's a practical, while there's really deep theology, it's not meant to be argumentative, it's meant to be lived. And that's one of the really, really powerful things about this whole book. And it's, that's really cool. Uh, the key verse, right, for, for is for me to live to Christ, is Christ for me to die and to die as gain. That, that even death, right, God is even honored. Christ even builds us and edifies us, even in death. We talked about the takeaways last week, right? We don't do ministry alone. We saw that, that Paul was thankful for the Philippians church and their partnership. We're going to see a couple of other examples tonight on, on who he partners with. Um, and we talked about suffering, right? We see things in God's light. We can identify opportunity for the gospel's advance, even the most trying of circumstances. A lot of times, right, the suffering that comes on us is where we look for opportunities to share the gospel. A lot of times our suffering will take us places we don't want to go, but the gospel needs to be, right? And so that's how we view our suffering as Christians, that it walks us to places that the gospel needs to go, even if we don't want to go there. Um, it's the self-sacrificial giving nature of our love demonstrates our maturity in faith, right? That, that as we mature, we understand that it's completely about God. And in all honesty, there's nothing at risk, right? There's nothing at risk because he says, fear God, right? And nothing else, Isaiah 11, fear, fear the Lord, Isaiah 12, don't be afraid. We talked about fears ascribing power and authority to something. We're going to talk about fear here in a little bit, right? And, and so we ascribe all power and authority to God, and the world's got nothing. The world can do nothing, right? It's got nothing. And so we don't have to be afraid, right? We don't have to worry about it. When God calls us, he will enable us and fulfill us to do those things. Um, our theology is always in street clothes, right? If it's, if it's not, you're just playing mind games. It plays out in the way we live as love follows in the wake of our living, right? That how we live, right, should just leave love in our wake, right? Because that's what Christ did. If you watch everywhere he went, everything he did, he left love in his wake. That's pretty awesome. All right, the key verse le leading in tonight is Philippians 2. Um, only let your manner be worthy of a life, uh, be, wor be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so that's kind of the tone for our life. Um, as we, and I just realized I don't have a clock, so I don't want us to be here until Saturday. Um, so I pulled my phone out. Um, right, so, so we lead lives, right, worthy in a manner. And those last three verses of verse one kind of talk about things from the outside, right? How, how um, there was pressure from the outside. And, and where we start in Philippians 2.1 is in that tone, but talking about the unity within us. So let's read Philippians 2.1 through 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Um, 
these if statements, right? So if there is any, right, any comfort, that, those are not if, right? That's a rhetorical device. These are the things Paul sees in the congregation. So these are attributes he knows the Philippian church to possess. And Paul, Paul really lays out that first verse, our, our motivation for unity, right? The first thing is a reminder that we have encouragement in Christ, right? We have the blessing of knowing Christ and of being found in him. And we have the gift of faith, right? All of that should be very encouraging to us. Right, that, 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 and that's the basis, right? Before he even gets to unity, he talks about, right? This is, this is why, this is where we stand, right? During times of hardship and trial, right? We find encouragement in our relationship with Jesus. The second thing we have is the consolation of love, right? That God is love, right? He is ours and we are his. And that his love flows through us to others, right? The greatest commandment is love God. The second greatest commander is love others as yourself, Right? And so his love comes to us and then goes through us to others. That's how, that's how we witness. That's how, how we love the word, world. Um, third, we're reminded that we share in the fellowship with the spirit. And how awesome is that? Uh, this is back to the Greek word for, for that is back to kononia, which we study back in Philippians 1.5. Um, the spirit unites us in one body, right? We talked about kind of being like one person. Uh, we're partners in the gospel, right? And it helps us in our weakness. That's Romans 8.26, right? Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't, we don't even know what to pray, right? As we ought but the spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. Isn't that cool? Right, we, we don't even know what to pray, right? And you've been there, right? Where you just, you don't know what to pray, right? But the spirit intercedes. He knows already what we need. He anticipates those things and gives those to us. How, how beautiful is that, right? We worship God by the, by the Spirit, and that's, we're gonna get that in Philippians 3, right? For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Um, the Spirit always drives to unity, right? And Paul presents him as an antidote of this disunity that seems to be threatening the Philippian church. The, the spirit, right? And that's one of the things I knew when I was a trustee. I was, I was known as the one because a lot of the votes would be 11 to one. I know y'all are shocked by that, that, that know me. Um, but but I, I, I saw things differently. But what I knew was when I came to the point of disunity, I had stepped past what the spirit called me to do and gone into the flesh. And so I would repent. And I would walk back to the last place I knew the spirit was and start walking from there again, Right? because I knew that's where unity was and the spirit would never draw our body to disunity, right? And so the spirit enables us to do those things. That makes sense? Good? All right. Uh, fourth, we share, in, in, we share affection and mercy or sympathy, right? Christ loves us with amazing tenderness, right? And God is the source of all compassion. Um, yeah, I love 2 Corinthians, right? We, we share in being the recipients of God's compassion. This is, and kind of, right, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 reminds us that mercy flows through us to others in his love. And that's blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Right, so it flows to us and through us, right, God's comfort. Um, Paul's approach is a model for us. He's not only warm and pastoral, but he's also quick to mention the blessings of the gospel before giving exhortation and correction, right? This is how we should treat one another, 
this is also how we should treat ourselves. Right? You should remember who God is, what God does, because that's where we find who we are. And then once you know who we are and who he is, then you can start looking at how am I to live? Right? What, what are ways that I should correct my life? I do that. I repent every day. But I do that last after studying scripture and praying. So that, I, so that I'm set correctly, so that his word has set me correctly, so that fellowship with the Lord has set me correctly. And then I'll repent because I understand who I am in Christ and I won't look on things improperly. Does that make sense? Because that, that's what sets the tone in us, what sets the tone in us. Um, a pastor's joy is often tied to the well-being of the church and their flock. Amen, Jay? Amen. Yeah, and, and not that it's a... It's a, a selfish thing, but it's you're called to, to tend these people, right? To call to tend this group. And so them flourishing, right, in the kingdom is just, a, is a beautiful thing, right? John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth, right? Through, through John 4. Um, walking in the truth involves unity of the body. So we must have the same mind in pursuit of Christian humility, right? And that's a virtue that has a very negative con connotation in Greek thought, right? As it carried the notion of a slave, but Christians elevated it as the soul of all, of the soil of all virtue, right? For anyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted, right? That's what Luke tells us. Um, you know, Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, um, you know, 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Close yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Right? And Colossians 3, 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. One of the really cool things, Micah, uh, my son, reads the Bible in French, in Arabic. And the French translation of blessed are the meek, and it's, I think, a 1910 translation. I wish he were here because I could ask him. Um, yeah, it's a 1910 translation. And, and, the, and it says, blessed are the meek is blessed are the debonair, which I thought was a wild thing. So we looked up the 1910 definition of debonair. You know what it is? A man free of the cares of the world. A man free of the cares of the world. What a beautiful way to think about meekness, right? That the world has no power over him. Right? He, he's free of that. And so that's meekness. I just thought that was awesome. Sorry. And we'll get back to the outline. Um, I'm so, yeah, anyway. All right, the Greek word for conceit is vain glory or a glory that does not exist or a glory that is empty. Um, the root notion of glory is weight, right? And only God is powerful enough to bear the weight of glory. Right, and, and we see that time and time again in, in our culture, in our history, right, where these people become very famous, these people become very rich, these people become very powerful, and it crushes them, right? And even when you don't see it, you go read their biographies, you go talk to the people close to them, and you see how it has, and that's one of the things Benjamin, right, went to Princeton, a very powerful school where very powerful people go. And it was kind of amazed to watch how it deformed them because of what they pursued, right? And it was, it was very interesting because Princeton doesn't indoctrinate you. It tells you what success is, right? It tells you what the goal is. And that makes everything else fall in place, right? That's how you get a $25 billion endowment, 
right? And it's amazing. You have to be very rooted in who you are in Christ to withstand that type of atmosphere. Because a lot of the kids go in as brilliant as they are, as, as powerful as they can speak, and they're incredibly, incredibly talented. But they, are, they become deformed by what, what success is defined by the university, right? And we're, ours is the glory of God, right? Do we have success? Absolutely. We live to the glory of God, amen? Right, that, that, that's what we do. And in that, nothing is on me. Nothing's on you. It's all him, right? And so we can be what God has created us to be. All right. Yeah, God will, yeah, glory will deform us if not rightly focused as glory is to be borne only by God. Um, there will never be unity in a congregation apart from the church walking in humility. There will never be unity in a congregation apart from a church walking in humility. One of the things that is very attractive about this congregation to me is many, many people that you meet, especially the teachers and the leaders are very humble. They have a humility to them, and that's, that's really rare in churches these days because we tend to put up the people who, are very, who can speak very well or who can influence very well. And you see so many people that lead in this church that are so humble, and it's beautiful, right? It's absolutely beautiful. And, and, and that, it brings unity within the congregation, right? So we've gotta be sensitive to the needs of, those, of the others around us, right? We don't disregard our own interests, right? That's not what Paul says but we put others' interest ahead of ourselves. Uh, this goes back to the kind of the primary question we asked when Jay, Jay and I were talking at the beginning of the pandemic. And Jay said, what do you see? And I said, we're gonna find out whether the congregation lives by who are you taking care of and who's taking care of you, right? Because that's the, that's the fabric of a, of a church, is us taking care of each other, right? The whole world will know you are mine, Jesus says. By what? How you love each other. Not how you love them, right? That's what you expect. And that's what the world tells you, by the way. If you'll love me right, I'll, I'll come follow. Like, no, no, no. We love Jesus correctly. And in that, we will love you well. And we do that starting by loving one another, right? Cool. Um, yeah, the lattice, the lattice of care is like a lattice plants grow on. Like you put a tomato plant. It's kind of the understructure of the church. Right, us taking care of one another. It's really kind of the understructure, so it, it pulls us together. All right, uh, this requires each of us to look out for the need of others. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this well, right? Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most of people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you think about him is that he seemed at first cheerful, intelligent chap who, who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life that easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Right? Right? John Stott speaks to the importance of humility. He says, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Right? That's how we grow. That's how we grow. Um, and then from other places in scripture, they, uh, uh, one of the commentaries put together a few disciplines for cultivating humility. And I thought this, this is one of those structures I told you I thought was kind of useful. Uh, the first one is to grow in humility by reflecting on the cross of Christ. There is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. 
where we see the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the grace of our Lord come together. Amen? You can be nothing but humble to foot of that cross, right? And that reminds us of who we are and who he is, right? And the great price paid. We grow in humility by, by reflecting on the glory of Christ. After Christ's incarnation in, in, in 2, 6, and 8, right, he's exalted. We'll see in 2, 9 through 11. Reminding us that one day everyone will bow before our king. And this lordship should create in us humble adoration. Right, and adoration is, a, is, a, is one of those words the world hasn't really taken yet, right? When we think about it, right, when we, we, when we respond in humble adoration to our Lord. That's a really beautiful and powerful thing. We grow in humility by reflecting on God's word, which reveals to us Christ's humility and exaltation. Studying the Bible in itself can be an act of humility. If you're going to the Bible with the attitude, I need your word more than bread, right? Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3. Right? And is that, is that how you go to his word? Do you, do you need the Bible more than you need to eat breakfast? The answer is yes, by the way. You need breakfast too, by the way. God doesn't say you don't have to have food. So I'm a big breakfast fan. But, right, you need God's word, right, more than you need food or water or air, right? God is looking for people to humbly seek, to humbly seek and submit to his word. Right? That's Isaiah 66 too. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. We grow in humility through prayer. Right? One of the reasons for our prayerlessness is lack of humility, which I really is... I, that kind of steps on my toes, so I'm not really liking that very much. Um, as we don't seem to be doing anything, right? I'm an engineer by training, and so I do. The, the reason I was an engineer instead of a, a theoretical physicist was because engineers have to make things work. Theoretical physicists can kind of say whatever they want, right? Now, you, do you really know those planets are way over there? No, right? I've got good friends who are astrophysicists. It's kind of weird, but right, an engineer has to make things work, right? Mr. Reed built this building, right? There are principles of engineering that went into this it, to, so that this magnificent structure would be here for God's church to meet, right? And it's awesome. But I, I loved engineering because it was putting things in the dirt. Prayer feels like, right, you're not doing anything. I think that I used this example in the first. This is from Steve Robinson, head of FCA. So there's a lot of things that you do each day, right, that you feel are really important. The world tells you it's really important, right? About a month from now, it's not that important. But six months from now, year, you'll never know whether you did it, right? Things of God seem unimportant in the moment, right? And then a month from now, and six months from now, and a year from now, they make all the difference. Because the things of this world are passing away. And the things of God go on forever. Amen? And these little, seemingly insignificant acts, ask, acts the Lord asks us to do. Right? These little acts of obedience mold your soul to look like Jesus. Right? These little acts of obedience. It's not, we keep thinking there are big spectacular moments that are going to change me into something different, and it's not. There are those things that happen, and they're rare. 
what what most what most of Christ's work is in little seemingly insignificant things that day by day grow you into Jesus, right? First Peter five six and seven. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. The last one's grow in humility through serving others. Serving, right? Serving without recognition grows in humility. Grows us in humility, right? We don't serve to be noticed. We don't serve to to have people. We serve because the Lord calls us to, right? And it's your heart toward that that makes all the difference. Right? Are you doing that because Jesus, Jesus tells you? Christians live a life obeying a different king, reflecting his values, standing together in courage, serving each other with humble compassion, and living lives worthy of the gospel in humble dependence on their Savior. Amen? All right. Wow. Okay. Uh, and this, this is... If you're going to memorize scripture, uh, this is, I would recommend this be where you start. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This is among the most magnificent scripture written. It is a, it's a hymn from everything we can tell. And it, it is a staggering summary of, of Christ's work in and through us. Um, and it's literally breathtaking. If, if you... If you really listen, it can't help but take your breath away. All right, so let, let's read this and we'll, we'll go. All right, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was t- t- in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. That's just awesome. All right. So this is a Christ-centered mindset, right? Paul magnifies the humility and exaltation of Christ, leading us to emulate Jesus' example and adore him as Lord of all. In, in, right, instead of living to get and get and get, the Christian is called to, to imitate Christ who came to give and give and give, right? So, uh, and, and, and this is a summary of Carson, Carson uh, D.A. Carson had, a, had kind of steps in the perspective of the cross. He said, in God's perspective, right, Jesus died as propitiation for our sin, 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In Christ's perspective, right, Jesus obeyed his father perfectly, uh, Luke 2, 22, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, my will be done. Your, my will, not your... your not my will, but yours be done. Sorry. Um, and he carried, our, uh, carried out his assignment in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. From Satan's perspective, the cross meant his defeat. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. 
right? And from our perspective, the love and justice of God meets in the cross, in Jesus. His victory on the cross represents the supreme standard of behavior, right? So we're given what to emulate. How cool is that, right? Verse five draws us back kind of as the, as the, as the, to verses one through four, as Jesus is the perfect example of what Paul was describing. Um, and while verses five to 11, I, and this is really important, while verses five to 11 are filled with deep theology, and Benjamin and I got into some pretty good discussions of some of the finer theological points in this. Um, while verses 5 to 11 are filled with deep theology, which we must consider closely, we must remember Paul's purpose in writing this is not to stimulate debate, but to generate adoration and emulation. This hymn reminds us of both the pattern we have to follow and the power that we have to emulate Christ. Right? So the mind of Christ, verse five, or having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, is both an idealized theological ethic, right, our position in Christ, and an ethical imperative, right, to imitate Christ in his mindset, uh, simulating his humility and unity, right? Yourselves is plural in relationship to one another, right, as this is a church that adopts a hum humble Christ-like mindset. Now, Hansen says a community of mindful of Christ is the way he described it. Um, Imitation is a key theme, right? Because we're not only going to get imitation here in, the, in this, but also with Timothy and Epaphroditus at the end of the chapter. And so they're being held up as examples, right, with skin on. Um, the, and the body of the hymn has two parts, right? Christ's humiliation in verses 6 through 8 and his exaltation in 9 through 11. So this is the humiliation of Christ. So perhaps we look at these three verses in three parts, right? Humble, humble renunciation, humble incarnation, and humble crucifixion. Uh, the humble renunciation, right? Jesus was with God in the beginning and enjoyed his preexistent exalted position, but he laid that aside for all sakes, right? Who, who though he was in the form of God, shows both the preexistence and divine nature of Jesus. Right, John said, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, right, in John 5, 8. Um, that, you know, John 5, 8, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making him equal with God. Right? Jesus pre-emphasized -emphasiz all through John, right? John 1, 3, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made. Right? And on down in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, 858, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Right? He was pre-existent. Um, the Greek word for form is morph, morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E, which does not describe the outward shape or external appearance, but the central attributes of Jesus. So he was divine in his essence, right? Paul was going to use the same word in verse 7, describe his nature as a slave. So Jesus was fully human and fully divine. And that is critical to our theology. Um, debates about Jesus' nature as old as Christianity, literally. Um, note some of the names from our church history teachings and systematic theology. In this, little in this paragraph, I lifted this from somebody. Um, indeed, there have been many alternative positions through the years, and I'm not going to pronounce any of them right. Ebonia, Eboniaism denied the divine nature of Christ. 
uh, Arianism denied the full, fullness of the divinity of Christ. Docetism denied the humanity of Christ. Apollinarianism denied the full humanity of Christ. Nestor, well, I'm not going to get that one. Anyway, unity of, I'm a redneck, so this is the best I can do. Uh, the unity of the natures in one person. You, you, yeah, denied the distinction of the natures, but in 451, right, in the Chalcedon, in Chalcedon, they wrote a creed affirming both Jesus' full humanity and his full divinity, united in one person. In doing so, they rejected all six of these Christological heresies. We have similar heresies today, right? Jesus was just a prophet, Right? Jesus was a good teacher, just a good teacher. Jesus was just a good man, a fine example. Sometimes you'll get the idea of Jesus is what matters. Right? All of those are heresies. Right? You get Lewis's liar, lunatic, or Lord. Right? All of these heresies are around us. But what we have to do to, 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 to keep from, those, from falling into those right, is what Deuteronomy 6 says. Right? We teach about Christ. We get up and we lie down. We walk along the way, right? We etch them into our children, right? like a hammer and chisel. That's the antidote to these things, right? That's what I hope that we have done with Benjamin and Micah, because right there in college, Benjamin's post-college. I mean, when they're when they're out there in in doing their thing, right? I hope they have the word etched on them, right? It's it's as frontlet to their eyes. Right, and bound their hands so that everything they see, everything they touch is, is framed in the scripture, is framed in the word of God, right? That's what that means. That's what the, the putting the frontlets, that's what putting it on your hands. It's what you see and what you touch, right? What you see and what you touch. Isn't that awesome? Uh, did, not, did not count equality with God as, something, as a thing to be grasped. Right? Jesus did not come to please himself. That's Romans 15, 3. For the God, Christ did not please himself, but it is written, right? The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Um, Jesus did not grasp at his exalted position. And it is, there was this beautiful table. Uh, it says, I love the, this is a comparison between Adam and Jesus. It says, Adam was made in God's image. And Jesus was and is the very essence of God, right? Adam wanted to be like God. Jesus took on the likeness of man. Adam wanted to exalt himself. Jesus emptied himself. Adam was discontent being God's servant. Jesus assumed the form of a slave. Adam arrogantly rejected God's word in sinful disobedience. Jesus humbly submitted to God's word in perfect obedience. Adam succumbed to temptation. Jesus overcame temptation and crushed the tempter. Adam brought the curse on the world. Jesus took the curse for the world. Adam was condemned and disgraced, and Jesus was exalted by the Father. Amen? Yeah, so, and we have a tendency to grasp, right? We have a tendency to hold on to things, right? We, we, we find comfort in, right, what your job maybe, your education, your 401k, right? Because as long as you save enough for retirement, you'll be fine, right? Not how it works. It was up to God in the first place, and it continues to be up to God. I took Benjamin to college. You know, I wasn't really not in, in favor of him going to Princeton because of its kind of worldliness. And so we were driving back. I told God, you know, I'm, I'm kind of leaving him now in your hands, to which I kind of got this reply of, he's been in my hands the whole time, but I appreciate you noticing. <laughs> that was humbling. And true, right? 
He loves our kids more than we do. Right? Hard to believe that, but he does. He absolutely loves our kids more than we do. All right. His humble incarnation, right? We remember from our teachings in systematic theology, Jesus will remain fully God and fully man, yet one person forever, right? That's out of Grudem. Um, empty referred to Jesus surrendering his rights and prerogative, not his deity, right? He was fully divine. Uh, he was still doing all his divine things, holding the universe together, right? Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together, right? When he was in the, a baby in the manger, was the world holding, being held together by him? Yes, Right? He's still fully divine. He's still fully divine. Um, it's fascinating, right, to see those things interact. And we also see the human limitations, right? Jesus being tired, right? He was asleep in the boat, right? He, he, well, he slept, he ate. Um, and, we had, we had, and if you want to go into this deeper, we had an extensive teaching. I think we spent a whole week on, on this back in systematic theology. So that'd be about a year ago. It'll be the beginning of the fall semester last year. So if you want to go into that deeper, there's, there's a ton on that. Um, by taking the form of a servant, right? Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, and gave his life as a ransom for many. And then John 13, three through five, Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That is the lowest and humblest job, right? As Jay said before, you're describing people's feet, right? Walking around with what, what was out on the street, right? This was a nasty job for the lowest of the low. And this is what our Savior knelt down and did. So what are you above? What am I above? Right? What do you, what, 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 what won't you do? What won't I do? What, what, what's beneath you again? This is a powerful image of Jesus performing the most menial of tasks, right? This was socially below all but the lowest of society, but Jesus demonstrated how we are, were to humble ourselves by living the example. Imagine if this were our attitude toward one another in the church, how many disagreements would dissolve into this humanity? Humility. Being born in the likeness of men, but found in human form. Uh, he was like us, but without sin, right? Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Um, Paul here uses schema for form instead of morphe. Uh, morphe, right, is the utterance of the inner light. We talked about that kind of being the essence, the essence. Uh, morphe is the, is the necessary and fundamental expression, mode, or form of an object's essence, right? Schema is the fashion style or apparent arrangement of an object. So he was fully human, right, but he was sinless. And that's different. There's, there's an aspect that's different than us, right? None of us are sinless. And so while his whole essence, right, was divinity he, and he was fully human, there was a sinlessness to it that was slightly different. I think it's fascinating that Paul used a different word to kind of show that. Right? The difference is subtle, but Jesus is fully human, fully designed, but lives a sinless life, right, different from everyone else who's lived. How cool. Is that what I said? Um, humble crucifixion, right? This is the utmost of Jesus humbling himself. 
right? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, right? Jesus' whole life was marked by humility. From the birth in the backwoods feeding trough to 30 years of relative obscurity, then loving the unlovable and humbly serving others, culminating on the cross. Jesus humbled himself. No one, not Herod, Pilate, the Romans, or the Jews humbled him. Right? And in the New Testament, humble yourself is active. Right? This is the way of the kingdom. Whoever humbles himself like this child, right, Jesus said, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Right? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, as we read earlier. Right? And even to death on a cross. Right? This was a humiliating death in the eyes of the Romans as Roman citizens could not be executed this way. And in the eyes of the Jews, right? Galatians, Christ redeemed us even from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Right? And Isaiah 53 is probably the backdrop for this hymn. Right? Isaiah 53, 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 53.6, all, like all, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, 53.12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Right, and 1 Peter 2.24 sums it this way. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Amen? That's good stuff. That's good stuff. Now we get to the exaltation. This is, this is pretty awesome. All right, so um, verse 11, right? This follows the biblical pattern of whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus' incomparable humiliation, uh, humil humiliation leads to his super exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus re-entered glory that he enjoyed with the Father before the world existed. But what name was exalted? Was exalted? Um, lots of discussion, but many of them come down to, to Lord. And this is John. John Piper writes this in in the earth shall own shall own, and all the earth shall own him, Lord. Um, what name did Jesus receive after his resurrection that he did not have before? Not Jesus. Jesus is precisely the name of the humble servant who went to Calvary. In Acts 2.36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was his lordship and messiahship, his messianic lordship that was bestowed on him at his exaltation. Not that he wasn't Messiah and Lord before his resurrection, he was, but he had not fulfilled the mission of Messiah until he had died for our sin and risen again. And therefore, before his death and resurrection, the lordship of Christ over the world had not been brought fully to full actuality. The rebel forces were not yet defeated and the power of darkness held the world in its grip. Not really cool, but anyway. Um, in the order that the acclaimed Messiah and Lord the, son, Lord, the Son of God had to come, defeat the enemy, and lead his people out of bondage and triumph over sin and Satan and death. He did that on Good Friday and Easter. The name that is above every name, therefore, is Lord. 
the Lord victorious over his enemies, the Lord who has purchased a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he knows us. That's pretty awesome. Everyone's, everyone's adoration and confession, right? So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right, that's Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 35, 23, right? To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Jesus as Lord is perhaps the earliest Christian confession and a shorthand for the gospel, right? Romans, 8, uh, Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Um, Millick says, this is the hymn, this hymn includes every conceivable habitation of personal beings, right? Heaven, earth, under the earth. Uh, some will confess him as Lord with great joy and humility. Others will confess him as Lord with despair and anguish. History is not a treadmill or a circle, but is moving toward this day when all will confess. To the glory of God the Father, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation bring glory to the Father. No rivalry exists in the Godhead, only delight and honor, a perfect conclusion to the hymn. Good stuff? That is good stuff. We may finish before tomorrow. Wow. I swear time moves faster in this room. All right, light to the world. Light stuff up. All right, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Right, so Paul calls out the, Christian, the Philippian church to work out their salvation together by the power of God's grace and to shine like stars in the world. Right, that's the NIV translation, I think. And the section starts with therefore. And as Jay has taught us, when we see a therefore, we ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Y'all are supposed to say that with me. We've been doing this a long time. Paul reflects on the hymn, right? So he looks back at the hymn to teach us much more about discipleship. And it is done in a very pastoral way. He loves this church, right? And this is a very personal, intimate letter, as we've said. So let's look at three connections to this section, right? God's work and our work, right, that work out. Avoid grumbling while shining as lights in the world and sacrifice and rejoicing. So let's begin by, by being clear, right? Paul is not telling us to work for our salvation. That's works righteousness. We don't believe in that, right? Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, Right? So he's not telling us to work for salvation. This is not justification. But we typically divide salvation into three components, right? Justification, sanctification, and glorification, right? Justification is being made right with God. That's completely God's act. We did nothing, did nothing to deserve it, don't do anything to make it. It is all God. Sanctification is where we as believers, we in the room that are believers are. We're being made to look more like Christ. 
right? And so there's a process to this. And so that's what Paul is talking out in this process. As we're sanctified, we work out our salvation. We work out our faith. And that's us becoming and looking more and more like Jesus as we go every day, all right? Does that make sense? All right. Yeah, sanctification is the process that we currently live in with glorification will come at the end, right? When we are reunited with Christ in his presence for eternity. I put three exclamation points because that's really exciting. Uh, Paul begins with, with commendation, right? Commendation, as he does in, in Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 4.1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And then on down in verses 9 and 10, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. So he begins with a commendation. He begins telling them, man, you're doing, you're doing a good job. Um, we should find encouragement here, right, that growing in Christian maturity is evidence of God's grace and goodness. Paul urges the church not to be complacent in what they're doing and doing well, but to continue in a long obedience in the same direction, which is an ironic quote usurped from Nietzsche. Um, it's not even our doing, but, it work, but God at work in us, right? We just act in obedience, taking up our cross and following him, right? And in and, and Luke 9, 23, 24, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will lose it. Uh, Tozer, one of the first Tozer sermons I ever heard, uh, he talked about, he said, when you get up in the morning, your cross is laying on the ground behind you. Your cross is laying on the ground behind you. And you have to make a decision each day to turn around, pick it up, and start walking. Right? That's what we do as Christians every day. We take up our cross daily and follow him, right? It's this constant choice, right? That's what sanctification works out to. It's God giving you that you are the desires of your heart changing. I've said, I told you, as a family, we review every few months. As, do you see the fruit of the spirit growing in me? Right? I ask that of my wife. I ask that of my son. That's a very dangerous question to ask of your wife and your sons, right? Because they see me all the time. But it's critically important. Critically important. Uh, let's see. We tend to think of this working out as an individual, individual thing, but it is not. We do this as a community with other believers walking with us to help us, advise us, and encourage us, right? And let, in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, right? And, uh, yeah, I think this is Lewis. This is Hanson. It says the plural form of the verb work out and the pronoun your can be seen as a corroboration that Paul's command should not be interpreted in a merely individual sense as a requirement for each individual to work out personal eternal salvation, but in a corporate sense as a call for the whole community to rebuild social harmony. 
Paul's consistent emphasis on the unity of the church in this context compels us to see that Paul's call to work out your salvation has an eschological reference. It's a call to restore harmony in the church by serving one another. This constant between an individualistic sense and a corporate sense to command work out your salvation does not posit an, an antithesis between individual responsibility and corporate responsibility. Restoring unity in the church by serving one another is the responsibility of each individual Christian. Paul's command in verse 14 is to do everything without grumbling and arguing, confronts each member with the challenge to desist from attitudes and words that tear apart the social fabric of the community. Right? Fear and trembling is not a cowering position, but in reverence and awe of God. We talked about that before, right? That fear is giving all power and authority to God. Um, second, let's see. We talked about fear and God a few weeks ago, the authority of God. Um, D.A. Carson writes, right? God is at work comforting, that God is at work in us. God is not merely not working merely to strengthen us in our willing and acting. Paul's language is stronger than that. God himself is working in us both to will and to act. He works in us at the level of our wills and is and at that level of our doing. But far from this being a distinctive to press on, it's Paul insists that this is an incentive. Assured that as we are that God works in this way in his people, we should be all the more strongly resolved to will and to act in ways that please our master. Right? It's God's work in the end. Right? Our sanctification is God's work in the end. To shine. So how does this look practically, right? Do everything. This affects all aspects of our lives. Um, and Paul contrasts complaining and, and shining. Uh, avoid grumbling and complaining. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, right, reminds us to do all to the glory of God. Uh, sometimes grumbling and complaining is blatant, blatant and sometimes subtle, right? We must be careful with our words and attitudes. The church is made up of people, and so it often disappoints, right? But we see the example of Israel in Exodus and Numbers, right? They're grumbling and complaining. And Paul told, told Corinth to consider their sad example and to do the opposite, So, and, and dissatisfaction is a very powerful driver in humanity, right? Anger and fear are key motivators toward dissatisfaction. That's why social media, so we talked about that a couple weeks ago, that's why social media and media advertisers have found if they can make us afraid or angry, they can direct our steps. We must be conscious and perceptive, and perceptive of these leadings so, and turn to scripture as our guide to take these thoughts captive and to speak truth to them, right? We go to the gospel for our joy to remember the goodness of our God. We avoid grumbling and arguing as it damages our witness. Both internally to the church and externally it works against us. We look more like the world with misplaced hopes and wrongly directed fear. We form division in the body which will weaken us not in not only being obedient, right? Grumbling and complaining can cause us to lose our distinctiveness, our saltiness that Christ calls us to. So we are to shine as children of God. We're reminded that we are children of God, children of the King, right? Colossians 4, 2 through 6 should be our guide and our lives particularly distinct 
in light of suffering. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in, in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open, us to a, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Hold fast to the word of life, writes his next word. The word is our rock, the revelation of Jesus to us, sufficient for our salvation and sanctification. Right, the Bible is critical. That's why we started systematic theology at the word. Right, we started with, with, with the word and walked out from there. Um, anticipating the day of Christ, right? Paul knew only one thing mattered in the evaluation of his work, and that was, and that would be on the day of Christ. I love how Corinthians, this is one of my favorite verses in Corinthians. I love that in Corinthians it says, what matters in our works is what they're made of. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire, right? So we build out of gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. What's going to survive fire? Not wood, hay, and straw, right? And so God says what matters about your ministry, what matters about, you, about what you do is not how big it is, not what the budget is. It's what's it made of. Is it made of gold, silver, and precious stones or wood, straw, and hay? Right? We see a lot of really impressive ministries that are built out of wood, straw, and hay. And if you look close enough, you can see it. Right? And then you can see people doing things that seem really small. But man, that's a precious stone. Right? That's, that right there is gold. Right? Good stuff. All right. Rejoice. Uh, pour out as a drink offering. This is echoes of 2 Timothy 4 6. Right? And Paul, this is, in, in, it's right, 2 Timothy is the last letter. Paul knows he's done. Right? In 2 Timothy 4 6. And he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Right? Do you realize your life is being poured out or spilled? Right? If you're not intentional. Your life is being poured out. What is your life being poured out for? What is your life being poured out for? And like Jay says, you can go look at where you spend your time and where you spend your money. And that'll give you a pretty good indication. Because your life will follow that. And he says his being poured out, should, should we should rejoice. That he rejoices and we should be both, right? That we... We, it should make us, I think Ortberg says, right, that this should make us happy. It makes Paul happy that his life is being poured out for Christ, right? And it should make us happy as well. Wow, okay, I think we'll be done. I can get this in nine minutes. Do you believe that, Jay? I don't know. We'll see. We'll find out. All right, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get this down. All right, so Timothy and Epaphroditus.
Um, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I, so that I too may be cheered by news for you, news of you. For I have no one like him who will who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to to send him as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust that the Lord in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Right, so it's kind of, this is a little bit weird to have this, right, Paul normally ends his letter with kind of a travelogue, right, kind of a bunch of little notes at the end, and Paul's doing it here in the middle. And so there are scholars that go, well, this is, means Philippians was two letters put together. I don't think that's true at all. I think this letter is a stream of consciousness. I think Paul's just writing, right? These are people he knows and loves and he's just writing. And man, you know, that, that hymn reminded him of shining like stars. And man, when he thought about shining like stars, he goes, dude, I know two guys like that. Right, let me, let me, let me show you that. I mean, Jesus is his idealized thing and he's certainly our model and we get that, but let me show you two guys who can live it out, right? Let me show you who guys, two guys that are doing this. And so that's why this travelogue is here, right? Uh, Carson in Basic says, much Christian character is as much caught as taught. That is, it is picked up by constant association with mature Christians, modeling, modeling. It takes place all the time, whether we take it into account or not. That's what I tell parents all the time. Your kids are not gonna act the way you tell them to. Your kids are gonna act the way you live your life, right? Your kids are going to act the way you live your life. And so if you wonder why your kids are acting like that, it's always good to look in the mirror. I can still remember, I think it was my sister-in-law, his, his, uh, my, sis, my sister's child. She was, a, we're, we're, my dad was a fighter pilot, so we're kind of aggressive. We'll kind of leave it at that. And she was sitting there at the stoplight, and all of a sudden her two-year-old starts going, come on, green light, come on, green light. She was like, I wonder where she got that. Anyway, right, but, but, that's, but that's what we do, right? We model out. That's why it's so important to come together. That's why it's important to have small groups with multiple generations, right? We, we have a lot to learn from each other, and it goes both ways, all right? I learn at least as much from Benjamin as he learns from me, right, in, in spite of our 35-year age difference. Um, so let's look at the example of Timothy, right? Paul says Timothy will come later rather than sooner as Paul's trial is not concluded. Um, as we look at these verses, we'll consider Timothy's compassion and his companionship. So Timothy's compassion, no one is like Timothy in his attitude and character and closeness to Paul. Timothy genuinely cares about, the, about others, right? As opposed to the selfish ambition that motivated others that Paul talked about earlier. Timothy served the church. We are to serve humbly like Timothy. And so, and, and this is what we look, uh, look for in our leaders, right? From our sermon series, right, that Jay's been preaching on the last couple of weeks, right? It's 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on height of his stature, 
because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks to the heart. Right, when we read First and Second Timothy, Timothy's pretty fragile. Right, take a little wine for your stomach. Right, kind of sickly. Right, but this is a powerful man of God, despite any external appearances. Right, and, he, and he's so loyal to Paul. Right, we follow compassionate servant leaders who are following Christ. We listen to them, hear their hearts, watch their lives. They look to the interest of others for the glory of Christ. Also, Timothy's companionship, right? Timothy has proven character. Paul loves him as a spiritual son. So Paul did not dispatch Timothy immediately, but Paul was in need and treasured Timothy's companionship. Hopefully, we all have friends like this, right? There are those times where you need your buddies, right? And so much of our culture isolates us, right, from one another. That's why doing this is so important. Sitting here in person, learning, coming to church and worshiping together, right? Singing along with Luke, right? That's critical stuff. Critical stuff to us as human beings. All right, the example of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a male version, the Epaphroditus, right, the name, was a male version of Aphrodite, a Greek mythical goddess. He was likely a Gentile convert. Epaphroditus brought Paul a financial gift from the church at Philippi and then stayed and ministered to Paul. Paul is sending him back because Epaphroditus fell ill and almost died. Paul wanted the church to honor Epaphroditus. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture. And Paul wanted to be sure they understand who, it is, who is proper to be honored. Make sense? All right. Um, Paul lists five descriptors of Epaphroditus' character. Three relate to his relationship with Paul and two to his relationship with the, with the church. Right? So the type of man he was. He was a brother. Right? He is part of the Christ-given family of Paul. And Paul had familial affection for him. He was a co-worker. Right? He labored in the same work as Paul. He was a fellow soldier. This is one of Paul's favorite descriptions Right? over in uh, 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. Share in, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits such as, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Right? They've been through spiritual war together. He's a messenger. Right? He was sent to convey the love and financial gift of the church. And he's a minister. He serves a priestly function, right, is in the priesthood of the believers. And the type of love he displayed, right, Epaphroditus was focused outward even when he was sick, concerned that the church had heard he was ill. The distress, the word distress is the same of great anguish Jesus displayed before his death. Um, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 expressed out theology. Philippians 2, 19 through 30 shows it lived out, right? But we need help to live this kind of life. And God's mercies are new every morning. Amen? Right? Paul was not emotionless, but we do not grieve as those without hope. This is Paul's goodness, right, expressed to Epaphroditus, to Paul and the church at Philippi. We should respond in humble gratitude, right? God healed Epaphroditus in his mercy, not only to him, but on Paul and the church, right? The type of welcome he deserves. Paul sent Epaphroditus back so everyone could experience peace. Epaphroditus, Paul, and the church. Paul says he should not only be received with joy, but with honor, right? This was a servant, not someone who Paul, whose society would have held in high esteem, right? But someone that the church, because of the way we value things, should honor, right? The Christian life should be filled with honoring one another. All right, so takeaways. Uh, serving Jesus and others will cost you, but it's worth it, right? It will cost you. 
It will cost you to follow Jesus. Why Jesus says, count the cost before you start this thing. Right? It's going to cost you. The often difficult, self-sacrificial call of Jesus on your life will cost you, often more than you're comfortable given. But the glory of God is what it's about. And the only way there is obedience to him. Deep relationships are formed when you're on mission with other brothers and sisters, right? Deep relationships are formed when you work shoulder to shoulder with other in the mission of Christ. That happens specifically in mission trips. It should happen every day, right? Every day, we are a church on mission, right? When we walk in these doors and when we walk out of these doors, we are on mission for Christ. No different than a mission trip. Right? Geography isn't the issue, our heart is. Right? Geography isn't the issue, our heart is. The church has always been sustained, enriched, and built up. Sustained, enriched, and built up by unsung heroes. Right? Romans 16, that list Paul gives. A bunch of people that nobody will ever know. Right? A bunch of nobodies. And they're in scripture. Right? Because they're Paul's buddies and they serve with him in the kingdom. In humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Right? Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus are all examples of, the, of our lives following Christ, providing living models of how Philippians 2, 5 through 11 plays out in real life. So how do we see the goodness of God? We, strive, we serve together and strive to unity within the church, and our mission binds us in special ways that strengthen the body within the within the challenge for the well for the challenges we face sorry how good is god to give us one another the contrast in the christian and non-christian life should be stark like light in darkness our lives should show that difference god's goodness allows us to be beacons in the night to guide people toward christ in the daily living of our lives and the hymn this is the only way i know to close this Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. Amen. All right. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Well done. Um, man, 11 minutes you landed the plane. Well done. Well done. So uh, he has always been a good teacher. Uh, again, I'm hearing that preacher come out, especially in that session about that section about Adam and Jesus. Yeah. And four pages on Philippians 2. He's going to be a commentator writer uh, by the time it's all said and done. That's what I was teasing him e easier uh, earlier about some of that as well. So, uh, man, you, you did well. We have one amen, one comment, and uh, one question. Um, and so... Um, Oh, well, now two, another one popped up in there. But uh, yes, definitely an amen. Uh, here's a quote uh, along the lines of talking about your parenting. Don't be worried your children aren't listening to you. Be worried they are watching you. Amen. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Yep. There you go. 
Uh, and uh, so is there a sense in which we cannot empty ourselves the way that Jesus did because he was divine and we are limited in our sinful humanity? Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, we're, like you say, we're not, that was a, a statement of his divinity. Um, the way that we, I don't think it emptied ourselves as much as humble ourselves is what we do. And that, that's really more of our, the prerogative or dimension that, that we're in. Um, and we humble ourselves to, to Christ. And in humbling himself to Christ, we humble ourselves to one another and to, the, and to the people that we serve, to the glory of God. Yeah. Remember what Paul says. Let your attitude be the same yep. as that of Christ. Yep. So obviously, you know, we're not going to be like Jesus until we're on the other side, but our goal should be to be more like him. And yep. so, yes, there's certainly a dimension uh, to which we don't get to surrender divinity right. uh, or, or let go of, of, of playing the God card as we were, Brian and I were talking about that earlier. That's another way to put it. Yeah. But certainly the example, and you have to remember that one of Paul's most frequent uses of rhetoric, he was a brilliant orator. And the if this, then, yeah, yep. you will see that in Romans, you'll see that in a lot of Paul's writings, right? And so it's the argument from the greater to the lesser. So obviously if Jesus, who is God, was willing to do this, well then how much more should we, yep. uh, is the way that we would, we would put that in kind of practical terms. So uh, yeah, that word kenosis, by the way, they're entire books. <laughs> I'm not even joking, yeah. written, written about that single word, word. Yep. Uh, and its etymology and its meaning. Um, and so another quote that might be helpful to you guys when we consider this, uh, these words like morphe, right? The, 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 the word for form. It's incredibly challenging sometimes to put theology into human language. Yep. Uh, the theologian N.T. Wright says, it's like trying to point a flashlight at the sun. <laughs> So remember that there's a limit to human language. And so obviously the spirit inspired these words so that uh, we, we could have a, a sense of them. But, but to some degree, when you're talking about the example of Christ, human language falls short, right. hence his example, hence the power uh, that comes from the cross um, that plays into everything. One more before we go, uh, Ron, you explained it well, but please go back over the meaning of working out of your salvation, how it is and how not to call uh, to some kind of active works. Well, it's, I guess it, it not, it's not a works in sense of your salvation. It is works in sense of things that you do, right? And so there are di like disciplines, right? Spiritual disciplines are things we do to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Um, learning more about the word, right? Doing what we're doing right now right, as part of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah, uh, and I would argue scripture in terms of scripture, uh, yeah. James one twenty two is yeah. one of the clearest ways, right? Don't just be a hearer of the word, but, but a, a doer. doer. Also. And that's an, I think that's really what, what Paul is getting at there, saying, of course, we're not saved by our works, right? You're not working out your salvation in order to save yourself, but you are working salvation, the gospel, into every facet of your life. Yep. Um, and you do that as you, you put what you have heard into action, uh, into into word and into deed. All right, well, well done. You covered it so well. Not that many questions tonight, but uh, excellent teaching. Uh, next week, we'll be in Philippians 3. If you want to read that, meditate on that uh, as we uh, continue to watch Paul uh, unpack uh, the goodness of God for us. Let's pray tonight as we go. Uh, Lord Jesus, we just thank you uh, mm. for your word, how it brings us life, how it brings us clarity. And uh, Lord, we thank you for, as, as Brian mentioned, God, Paul, as he just was inspired by the spirit, God, to, to pour out uh, your word to a people that he loved, a church that he dearly loved, just as we love this, this body of believers. And so God, may um, the example of Christ strengthen us that our unity comes not from merely trying to be unified, uh, but by looking at the example of Christ, uh, who is obedient to you. 
Uh, and so, God, may we too be obedient to your word. And uh, God, as we say often, uh, your word has been declared tonight, uh, but it has yet to be lived. So may we leave this place uh, to live it, uh, to work it out into our own lives uh, with fear and trembling, with uh, God, respect and awe uh, of uh, your word at work in and through us. So God, be with us as we go. Uh, and we look forward to the next time we gather together as your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen.